Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I am Cody, as Pastor John said. I'm the associate pastor here. And listen, our pastor is great at honoring and uh, just really supporting our staff. But man, is he not the most incredible pastor in the world? Amen. And he is my BFF bro. And man, our staff has a good culture. We really do love one another. And it is true. It's genuine. And uh, we really do love to serve you all. I'm so thankful for that. Um, We're going to be in Mark today, the book of Mark, continuing in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 33 and kind of work our way around it. As you turn there, we're going to look at the issue of pride today. Isn't that a fun one to talk about? We're going to look at that today, and I promise you this, it will impact every single one of us because we all wrestle in some way with the issue of pride. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and stand with me. Let's honor the Word of God as we read and begin to open it today. We're going to start in verse 33. It says this, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Let's pray as we are just covered in the word today. And so, Father, that is our prayer that you would wash us in your word. God, as we open your word, would you open our mind, God, our heart, our ears, Lord, to just see who you are, God, in a reflection of who we are called to be. Lord, help us in every single way, Lord, to die to ourselves, Lord, to to kill pride, Lord, and to keep it at bay, Lord, because we want to live in humility and a posture that Christ shows us. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. This is your house. You are our God. And so we want to honor and glorify you today. Would you save many? Would you draw people like never before? And all God's people said in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. As I said, we're going to talk about pride today. And I would ask the question, are you a proud person? And it's kind of a trick question because if you answer and say yes, that probably means you're actually more humble than you realize, right? But if you're a person who says, you know what, I'm pretty humble. Well, that's actually kind of proud to say that. And so it's kind of a trick question, but we all struggle with pride. Gerald Gardner quotes Ronald Reagan in one of his books, recalling an occasion when he was governor of California and made a speech in Mexico City. Here's what Ronald said. After I had finished speaking, I sat down to rather unenthusiastic applause, and I was a little embarrassed. The speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which I didn't understand, and he was being applauded about every paragraph. To hide my embarrassment, I began clapping before everyone else and longer than anyone else until our ambassador leaned over and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's just interpreting your speech. Pride is a serious issue that we all deal with. What is pride? It's the opposite of humility. It is the enemy of Christ. And I will tell you this, as a Christian or a non-Christian, we all wrestle with this. And so it applies to every single person, the believer and the non-believer in Jesus Christ. Pride leaves us alone and isolated because no one wants to be around a prideful person. Pride, simply put, is the overestimation of one's self. John Stott would tell us this. He says that every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. That's why this is so important, church, that we talk about pride today because it truly is the greatest enemy of what God wants to do here. It's the greatest enemy of what God wants to do in your life. 
pride will keep you from growing towards the Lord. And I want to encourage you in this. You may say, how does this apply to me today? How does this work? Every single person sitting in this room and in the entire world is either growing in pride or humility. There is never a place where we are not growing in one direction or the other. And so I pray today that God would grab hold of us in such a way that we would be humble and see Jesus who he is, and we would learn from these disciples. There's a few things in the Bible that we see that you kind of are familiar with about pride. One is that Solomon tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Every single person is going to meet a place where they will utterly fall and fail if they have built themselves up, elevated themselves in their own work, their own merits, their own performance. They will utterly fall. And we see that time and again throughout the word of God, do we not? These even men of God who were after God's own heart, who God had blessed and favored and bestowed great things upon, who followed God closely, would get to a point time and again where they would be so puffed up and conceited, selfish because of their pride, because they were worried about I, and they would fall greatly. I love that God's grace always, though, is to see reconciliation in these things. And so the encouragement for you today is no matter where you're at in this walk with pride, if you're wrestling with this, God's grace is sufficient. God is able to teach us how to be humble and come to him in humility. And here's the, the beauty of it all. No matter how prideful we are, God says, if you will just come to me, I'll make you new. I'll redeem you. I will make you new again and give you new life. God also hates pride. It says in Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests. That's utterly disgusted, right? You detest something. That's like leftovers we talked about one week. We don't eat leftovers in my house because it detests me, Right? The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Not only does he test it, he also opposes it. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to tell you this, as a person who is a believer of Jesus Christ, man, I wrestle with pride. Man, just being completely honest. I'm one of those people, right, in ministry who's like, oh, man, don't do that anymore. But I'm like, also like, come on, what else you got, right? One of those movements where it's like, you know what, I'm going to be humble, but I want to hear a little bit more, right? And those are just whispers and lies of the enemy to try to entice me and ensnare me to a point where I would say, man, you know what, maybe I am awesome. And God would remind me, you are nothing. You are not worth anything. Yes, he sent his son to die for me, but my best day, my best works, it's filthy rags in comparison with the perfect standard of who God is. And so we all wrestle with pride. Even as a Christian, God loves us. God has sent his son to die for us and redeem us. But if we live in a continual state of pride, God detests that pride. And if your life is going in a direction where you feel there's opposition, maybe it's because there's pride in your heart and God's opposing that. Pride. Benjamin Franklin says this about pride. There is perhaps not one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I completely overcome it, I would be proud in my humility. Pride. We're going to see in the passage today, the disciples wrestled with pride greatly. Jesus has called them. Jesus has anointed them. Jesus has given them incredible authority to do things in his name. But there came a point where pride became such a part of their lives. Even these good, godly Christian men who followed Jesus and left everything behind, they became enticed in pride, and it led to things that were consequential and destructive in their lives. So the first thing we're going to see is that pride leads to powerlessness. We're going to go back to verse 14. Jesus has come down off the Mount of Transfiguration, and he walks down and meets his disciples here talking with some scribes. And here's what it says starting in verse 14. 
And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to meet him and greeted him. And he asked them, this is Jesus, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your who? Disciples, these men of God, to cast it out, and they were not able. Powerlessness. We see that there is a work here that is happening where a man brings his son, and literally Luke would add that he's begging, would you please uh, overcome this demon? Would you cast out this demon in my son's life? He's had it since he was a child, and it continually tries to kill him, this demon does, because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and not just play around. He comes to destroy, and he's begging these men of Jesus who follow Jesus, could you please cast out this demon? And they can't do it. The question is why? And they've done this time and again. They were sent out in Mark chapter 6. God told them, I give you all authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to make the lame walk. Whatever it is, he said, I've given you authority in my name, power in my name. But they were powerless. Jesus tells us in verse 19 the result of this. He looks to his disciples because that's who he's talking to here. And he answers them, oh, faithless generation. It's kind of like your mom using your full name when she calls you out, right? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Disciples couldn't do it because they did not have the faith required. We say, how is that connected to pride? Did Jesus not tell them to go do this? Did Jesus not give them the power to do this? Did Jesus not give them the authority to go and cast out these demons? Absolutely. So they lacked faith because their pride said, we don't know if we really trust that. Jesus is up on the mountain right now with God. We're all alone. Do we really trust that we can do this? Do we trust that God is able? You see, it's pride to say that we define who God is and what he's capable of whenever God says, I can do anything. You think it's impossible for me, but with God, everything is possible. God has commissioned you, church. God has called you, church. And it's pride to not live that out. It's pride to not walk in faith and trust in God. And can I tell you, yes, I know that that's a battle every day. Yes, we have doubts. But man, let God be bigger than those doubts. Take those doubts to God and say, no, no, no. I'm not going to trust my doubt. I'm going to trust my God that he is able. Don't lack faith. Because when we do, we walk in pride. Maybe we don't see the work of God in our life because there's pride in our heart that says, can God really do it? Man, do you really believe God is able to save the people who you think are unredeemable? Do you really believe that God is able to turn a world upside down? Do you believe that God is able to do everything he wants to do? Do you believe it or do you just think it? Do you have real faith? Don't let pride get in the way of that because it makes us powerless when it comes to the work of God. Jesus goes on and begins to tell us, though, the good news. He says in verse 20, And they brought the boy to him, and the Spirit saw him. Immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. This is interesting. Jesus is just asking questions while this is happening. He's not phased. Uh, He's not caught off guard. He's just having a normal conversation while this demon is doing all this havoc. And what a picture of Christ that is. Calm in the midst of chaos because he is peace. How long has this been happening? He said, often it's cast him from fire into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Do you believe today? Do you truly believe 
God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do? And if the answer is yes, then does your life match that? Are you walking that out in faith or does pride have a hold of you to doubt and distrust the Lord? He says, if you do, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What a great cry we could have today. Maybe if we sit here and we're struggling with faith and trust in God, we simply cry out, God, help my unbelief. And I promise you, God gives grace, we just think about, to trust him more. Help my unbelief. Jesus says to him, you mutant death spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, powerless, apart from faith. Not only were they powerless, but they were also prayerless. There's a second part of this. Not only did they have pride in not trusting that God was able to do what he said, even though Jesus was up on the mountain not with them, they didn't have trust in God, and so pride was in the way. They also did not pray before doing the work of God. We know that because in verse 28, he says, when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. They were embarrassed. They were humiliated. And these are supposed to be the sons of Jesus Christ, the ones who followed him, that he called, and they did all these marvelous works. They couldn't do this, and they were embarrassed. And I promise you this, that if we will not receive humility, then God will humble us. It's one way or the other. We can choose to be proud, but eventually there's a day of coming when you will bow before King Jesus, you will confess that he is Lord and God, and you will be humbled. They come in, they say, what happened? Why can we not do this? And he says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Did you know that not praying is pride? It's prideful to not continually have a habit of prayer because you're saying, I don't need God. When we don't come to the Lord and bow before him and give him everything and have relationship with him and confess our sin to him and ask him to help us and live our lives, then we say, God, we don't need you. God, I'm God. I rule my own life. I direct my own steps. I make my own plans. I determine my future. But a person who is in prayer is in humility saying, God, you're God. You are Lord. You are Jesus. You're everything. And I can do nothing apart from you. You see what happened, the disciples had done this over and over and over again. They had cast out demons and healed and done all these incredible miracles. And they got to a point where we said, you know what, we got this. We can handle this. It's just another demon. We've done this before. Let's do it again. We'll do it the same way. We'll say the same thing. We'll do the same thing. It didn't work. Because Jesus says, you didn't pray. Can I tell you this? If you don't go in prayer, you don't go with God. When you go throughout your day, do you do like Paul without ceasing? Do you pray? doesn't mean that your eyes are closed driving down the road. Don't do that, okay? It means that constantly you're saying, God, you're Lord, you're God, and I need you. I need you for this conversation I'm about to walk into. I need you for this food I'm about to eat, right? I need you for every single thing as I walk into my home, into my workplace, whatever it is. God, I need you. God, protect me while I'm driving. You need God. And God sustains the breath in your lungs right now. That's how much you need him. The disciples didn't pray. And can I tell you, if things aren't getting accomplished, you want to for the work of God, would I ask this, are you going with God? Have you taken it to him in prayer? Maybe you have not because you asked not. Maybe you, you've asked but not with the right heart and humility, saying, God, it's not for my glory, it's for your glory and your kingdom, not my increase but yours. The disciples did not pray. Sometimes in church we think, okay, we're going to come in on Sunday, we're going to do it this way, and God's going to do a great work. And man, God does that a lot of times, but sometimes we need to come in and say, God, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. God, we're not going to trust in just a service, right? 
We're not going to trust in a structure of the way we do things. God, we're not going to trust in a sermon. God, we're going to trust in you, in your power, in your might, your strength. When was the last time you were desperate for the Lord? In such a way that you came in humility and laid it all out to him. Abraham Lincoln would tell us this. He says in a speech, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. And what a place to be as a church where we say, man, we are dependent on praying to the Lord. Prayer is a great work of God. Prayer is a great precursor to a lot of moves of God. Do you pray? If you don't, there's an issue of pride God would deal with today. Not only does it lead to prayerlessness and powerlessness, but here's another encouragement. It leads to foolishness. Verses 30 through 32, Jesus begins to roll out the gospel. He begins to roll out the plans of what's going to happen over and over again, leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus tells them several times, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again. Over and over again, the disciples miss it. Check what he says. He says in verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They were too proud to even be teachable, to be humble, to even ask Jesus, what do you mean? You see, part of the problem is this. They, the disciples said, you know what? You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the Son of God. You're not supposed to die. That's not my plan. Peter over and over again would say, like, you're, you can't die. That's not the plan that I have for you, God. You're not supposed to go do that, but that was the plan of God. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't receive instruction and wisdom because they weren't humble enough to receive that this is what God's plan was. Can I tell you this? We're in a better place when we get humble because God will give us wisdom. Now, in fact, I know this because Proverbs would tell us in 11.2, says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Now, can I tell you this, that you need today the instruction and guidance, the wisdom of the Lord? Man, I promise you, I cannot be a father, a husband, a pastor. I can't be anything apart from what God has been able to do through me and given me in his wisdom and his grace and mercy. I can do nothing. I promise you, I am not impressive. I'm actually a pretty boring person, pretty basic, look like everybody else, right? Just average dude. Man, I need Jesus to do anything of any greatness, of any glory, of any power for the kingdom of God. I need him. And so I got to go in prayer. I got to go with the power. I've got to go not looking like a fool. Only the humble know God's wisdom because only the humble receive the wisdom that comes from God. A proud person, get this, doesn't think they need help from God and is not teachable, so they forfeit the wisdom that could be theirs. I mean, you all know it. There was a time in your life when you were younger and you made a lot of mistakes probably. Some of you are walking in them right now. And you look back and you see your kids or your grandkids or someone else making the same mistakes. And you just think, man, if they only knew. I promise you this, if we walk close to God, we won't make as many of those mistakes and look like a fool. 
God will keep us, preserve us, and sustain us. He will give wisdom to keep from making those mistakes. There's foolishness, there's powerlessness, but then there's also divisiveness. Verses 33 through 34, that's kind of our main text. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. They were embarrassed once again. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who's the goat, as some generations would say. Who is the greatest of all time? Can I tell you that that answer is already answered in Jesus Christ at his hymn? Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. And he always will be, and forevermore. He always has been. Jesus Christ is everything. Everything. The disciples began divisiveness. Jesus has just laid out the gospel. I'm going to go and be killed. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. They start walking down the road. Oh, yeah, man. How many people did you count back there? I counted like 5,000. What did you do for God? Well, you know what? I think I'm pretty close. I think Jesus, I'm the one he loves, right? And they couldn't get over themselves to see what God was trying to do in their lives. And this is so dangerous for them at this point. This is why Jesus cares so much about pride. These were the first people who were going to preach the gospel. These are the first founders of the early Christian church, the first church. It's so important that they be unified in supporting one another and encouraging one another. They're not sitting there going, hey, man, let me wash your feet today. Let me wash your feet. Let me serve you today. Let me do this for you. Instead, they're saying, you know what? I'm the best. I'm the greatest. And can I tell you that we're prone to do that as well? Every single one of us is a great worshiper of self, a great promoter of self. Pride has I right in the middle of it, and that's what all pride is. It's selfishness of saying, what about me? What do I deserve? What do I get? What about the way things look for me? What about my assets, values, my performance, my power? about all these things? Pride would divide because they would become self-conceited, critical, and judgmental. And can I tell you this, that many churches divide over pride. Man, I've seen churches literally split because of the color of the carpet. Is that not the silliest thing you've ever imagined in your life? The color of walls, the way that they do things, all these things. Man, we got to get it to a point where a church, where we say, okay, God's doing a great work here. But it's not about me. It's not about my, pri- my preferences and what I think is a priority. This is the Lord's house, not mine. And this is God's church, his body of believers. Man, we want to see this body come to life, not kill it. You want to see God continue to do great work? Then become a church that's humble. A church that just devours pride in such a way that it has no more root in our lives because we're so humble, right, that God can come in and do a great work. John MacArthur would say, knowing that pride is the wedge Satan uses to split churches and split relationships, the Lord stressed to disciples the crucial necessity of humility. Humility. And he would go on and tell us what is humility. In verse 35, he says, he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. I mean, what a way to turn things upside down, right? All these people have known who are following Jesus is the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees and all the elitists. They would have the longest tassels, the finest clothes. They would be pompous and proud and puff out their chest. They would say the loudest prayers so everyone could hear them pray and the eloquent words that they would use. Everything they've seen about greatness in God comes from that. And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be the greatest, then you've got to be the servant of all. What a backwards way that the world has things. God says, the greatest honor in my kingdom is for those who are the least, those who are the servant. Can I tell you this? If you struggle with pride, start serving others. You want to find a remedy for pride? It's humility. 
It's being selfless and serving other people. And it's doing it in such a way God would tell us that we don't get anything back for it. Anybody can serve somebody and say, but I'm thinking I'm going to get something out of this. They can work a deal. You know, they can see something like, oh, okay, if I do this and treat this person this way, maybe I'll, there's something in it for me. But he would remind us as he talks about this child. He brings in a child. It says he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Can I ask you, how do you receive people? Do you receive them in the way that Christ would receive you? New believers, children, in the faith? See, God puts a child here because a child, they have nothing they can offer you, can they? My kids can do absolutely nothing to help me in my finances, right? I've got a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. They can't do nothing. They don't get no jobs. There's nothing they can do to offer. They can't really do anything to contribute to our family. How do I receive them? How do I serve them knowing that they can do nothing in return? God says treat each other the same way. Treat other believers and fellow people the same way, knowing that they can do nothing for you, nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Serve them. That's how you become the greatest church. You know, that's why it's so important that you get involved in a serve team. And you find a ministry that you can plug into and start serving because that will kill pride that's in your heart. It'll create humility more and more abounding, and you will be blessed by it because you're serving the Lord and doing what you're called to do. Serve. Pride leads to divisiveness. The disciples are stepping on each other's necks, literally trying to promote themselves about who is the greatest and who has accomplished what, who's going to be at the right hand, right? Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation, you do not pray, you do not trust, you are fools, you do not have wisdom, and you create division. The good news is there's one more. Pride leads to exclusiveness. Verses 38 through 41 John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. Not God, not Jesus, but he wasn't following us. So the disciples get to this point where they're so exclusive, right? They've got their own knit crew, like, man, I was called by Jesus, who were you, right? I'm one of the end guys, right? I'm on the inside here. I know all the, the closed door stuff that happens. And man, we're doing this great work of God. You're casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but man, you shouldn't even be doing that because you're not one of us. Can I tell you that sometimes as a church, we ought to pray more for other churches? And we ought to pray that the work of God would not just be limited here, but God would do a great work down the street, down the road, and across the world. The name of Jesus would be lifted up across every single church. The word of God would be open and spoken. People would be saved, not just at New Life Baptist Church, but everywhere. Can I ask you this? Would you be okay if God said, hey, a few miles down the road, I'm going to create a revival like never before that's going to shake the world? Would you rejoice in that? I mean, would you rejoice in what God was doing in that? Or would you say, that's not part of my church? And we all belong to one universal local church or one universal church body. We all belong to the kingdom of God, those who have believed. Paul would tell us this in Philippians, some indeed preach from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of my gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Here's the catch. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do we rejoice, church, that other people preach Jesus Christ and maybe they don't do the same things we do? Maybe they don't cross the T's and dot the I's the same way. They've got different color carpet, different color walls. Maybe they've got a different model of ministry or structure, the way they do things. If they believe in Jesus Christ, do we celebrate and rejoice that he is preached? 
Paul says we ought to rejoice and not just be exclusive in what the Lord is doing here. God sees, God knows, God remembers all things. And so what do we do when we're looking at pride? And how do we combat this? What do we do when we're looking at pride? We see humility. But what is humility? What does that actually look like? Paul would tell us again in Philippians 2 to look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. He would tell us that this is what humility is. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being what? Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to what? His own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he says, here's what humility is, but now I'm going to show you this in who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is humility, church. And can I tell you what God does to those who are humble? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pride is the enemy. Humility is the friend. And can I tell you that some of us today, we just need to come get low. Like literally practice a posture of lowness before the Lord. Get so low that we seek his face and put our face to the ground. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then come get low. Because it's only those who are humble that God will exalt and raise up for his glory, for his kingdom. Maybe you're here today, and I promise you this, there's probably about 75, 80% of the people in this room who have never truly come in humility to this altar. Not to be seen because they know they are seen by God. I would encourage you this, that pride will keep you in your seat. Pride will keep you from saying, you know what other people would think about me? That's more important than what God thinks about me. Pride will keep you from Jesus Christ because you'll say, you know what, I don't need God I can go to God in my own time. I know my life. I'm going to wait in the future. I want to have fun right now. You know, there is no God. Even though all of creation testifies and the rocks will cry out that Jesus is alive, that he is coming back, my pride will keep me from coming to Jesus Christ. Don't let pride get in the way of what God wants to do. There's nothing, we didn't do anything magical with this altar, I promise you. It's just literally concrete that really hurts my knees and a little bit of carpet, little bit of carpet, okay? It's really thin. But there's something about getting in a posture that says, I'm going to get on my knees because you're king. I'm going to bow my head in reverence because you were holy, you were Lord. And I would encourage you to make a practice more of being humble. There's a story about two ships that Closer Walk published in December 1991. It talks about in the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into icy waters below. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It was a technology problem like radar malfunction or even thick fog. The cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. Every single person is born into sin, born literally facing death and pride coming right back at us, and we're running at each other full speed. 
The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ died for you. He took on humility by taking his form of a man, becoming flesh, a baby, living a perfect life, being spit upon, mocked, scorned, beaten in every single way, cursed, despised, and rejected, died on a cross for you, and rose again so that you wouldn't have to face pride and death. You could change courses because you call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. But I promise you this, if you choose not to today, you will face that head on and it will destroy your life. For a Christian, we got to repent every day. We've got to be humble and seek his face, bow before him because he's God and he's king. And we need Jesus. For the non-believer, apart from Jesus Christ, you're headed for death an eternal separation from God. Don't let pride get in the way. Don't let other people's thoughts get in the way. You get right with God today. We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.